The following Dharma talk was given at Common Ground Meditation Center in Minneapolis, Minnesota. The speaker is Mark Nunberg, guiding teacher at Common Ground. So uh, I think I'll say this now, just so everybody knows. We'll have small groups later in the evening. And uh, I mentioned this last week, one of the obligations to being in the class is that you stay for the small group. So besides the one person that sent me an email saying that they had to leave, uh, the expectation is you stay for the small group. So don't try to sneak out. (laughs) If you're uncomfortable in the small groups, we'll all have compassion for you. Because it isn't, especially for some people, it can feel a little intimidating. But it's part of what we do, and it's amazing how much we learn in these small group sessions, just people speaking honestly about what it's like to have a heart, have a mind, have a life. And uh, yeah, there's just uh, a lot of value. And so I'll, I'll be sharing a little bit now, and some of that will help you formulate what might feel appropriate to share in your small groups. And I'll give you some particular themes, too, and give you a little time right before we break up um, in the small groups. But I thought we'd take first just a few minutes and just check in about the practice, because it's a little bit different tonight than last week. And as (coughs) people have been learning, there are many, many ways to cultivate a theme of loving-kindness, compassion, equanimity, appreciative joy. And we want to understand the basic elements so that we can we feel p- like we have permission to find our own way. So it's a good time to ask questions or just share even a little bit about what seemed to work for you tonight or what seemed not to help, what wasn't helpful tonight. So just talking specifically about the guided practice tonight, or any way that you've been formally sitting and doing uh, a loving-kindness, compassion practice over the last few days. Any thoughts that people have? Yeah, Kevin, please. My my dad was in town this weekend, and uh, we've had like a lot of tension building up the past couple years. Uh, ever since I found out he was going to vote for Trump. And there's a lot of politics that just shouldn't have been there. Uh, It shouldn't have been a problem. And that I associated with him. And this weekend, I just kept kind of coming back to uh, uh, the four qualities, the the kindness, uh, compassion, um, equanimity, joy, um, and appreciative joy. And just throughout the day, I just had this sort of, uh, like a, almost really like a meditation, but just a waking meditation. And, um, and of course I realized like, I, I began to see all of his kind qualities. Um, and it, it was an entirely different visit, um, it was just a lot more relaxing and there wasn't that tension. I mean, I could feel some tension from him from time to time, but it didn't feel personal to me. Um, And I've just sort of been on this high ever since uh, the last class of just, even when I'm driving, um, and I'm not quite sure I'm doing it correctly. Uh, It feels, it feels skillful and, 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 
uh, relaxing, but um, I just kind of I, I keep that going, and then I I keep a lot of that, uh, you know, can I keep this close, this emotion or this tension close, and can I let it uh, be as it is, um, and uh, yeah, it's been really uh, feels very uh, very helpful. Yeah, thanks so much for sharing that, Kevin. And one of the things Kevin said early that I, I think is really useful, I mean, he didn't say it in this way, but it really matters what we choose to pay attention to, like in terms of our relationships to other people. Somebody walks in, you know, a sibling or a parent or whatever it might be, or they we're not even actually interacting with them directly. So the memory of them shows up in our mind, right? And then it's really important to ask or to notice rather, well, what particular aspect of that person am I paying attention to? What is my mind focusing in on or highlighting about that person? And, you know, a lot of us have a very critical eye. And like for me, I notice I go immediately... And, you know, and with Buddhism, people who practice Buddhism, we can get even, this can be a real shadow because we, like, we get interested in suffering. And then it's like, I meet Helen and I don't care about anything. I just want to know her suffering. But not out of compassion. It's just this sort of, you know, some aspect of the critical mind, judging mind. Or, you know, when I meet my partner, maybe... Maybe it's like, I'm going to look, I'm going to probe for the last time we had a little argument or a little uh, conflict, then I might go looking there. But I just, it's not even conscious. It's just like, like how we look at old wounds. You know, Is that still hurt? Is that still there? And it's the same thing in relationships too. We kind of like probing. Is that kind of sensitive you know, space between us still there? But so this training, you know, in these three beautiful emotions of loving kindness, compassion, appreciative joy, or sympathetic joy, and equanimity, it's like we can look for other aspects in the relationship when we bring someone to mind. Like, is there something I can really appreciate in this person? Can I see that they're a suffering being and really have some authentic tenderness about their suffering? Can I just have this friendly relationship with this person? You know, can I can they be a mystery to be related to with equanimity? Like I don't know I don't have a clue who you really are, you know, whether you're good or bad. I don't I can't categorize you. I mean that's really the truth. So equanimity, it's like I know you're somebody, Kevin, but but I can have equanimity for you. So even if I don't know who you are, don't know how to evaluate you, I can hold that with equanimity. Yeah. And so this is the great thing. We can we have these other options now for how we relate to groups of people, individuals, the whole world, ourselves, all things. And what we're doing, you know, the reason for this refresher class, this two-week class, is just to give ourselves an incentive to practice, like Kevin described so nicely, moving through life, and well, I'm just going to practice using these emotions, these frames, and keeping them in mind. It's like we should have had a contest, like who can keep you know, one of the four frames of these four qualities in mind the longest? You know, how many 
what percent of the last seven days have we been in one of these four frames? Seeing the world through eyes, a kindly eyes, compassionate eyes, appreciative eyes, equanimous eyes. I'd want to win that one. <laughs> yeah, thanks, Kevin. Other thoughts that people have reporting about practice. So now we're talking about more formal. And yeah, Doug, please. Um, last week, uh, you mentioned something, at least I heard you say that um, your kind of your relationship that you have with your body sometimes reflects the relationship you have with your friends or intimates, um, casual friends, th- things like that. And uh, I've been thinking about that, and I, I, I kind of like that framework, whatever you want to call it. And if if you did say that, I think mm-hmm. you did. Yeah, something like that. Yeah. And I think it makes a lot of sense because I know how I relate to my body and you know, the good part of the relationship and the bad part of the relationship has reflected in some of my relationships I've had in my life. It's very parallel. Yeah. And it's it's so clear, too, when we do, like when you're doing this more formally, when you take a little time, you know, 10 minutes, 15 minutes, whatever, whether you use a body scan or not, you can just find your own way. But first and foremost, I'm going to take some time and I'm going to allow there to be a healing of how the mind is relating to the body. And I don't care how toxic that relationship has been during the day or the last 20 years. I've got this time now where I'm going to learn to relate, to have a healthier relationship to the body. And I find it really makes the, the further expansion of the quality, you know, these four qualities, these four emotions, a lot easier if we take a little time to begin with the body and find what equanimity looks like in terms of the mind relating to the body, what compassion looks like in terms of relating to the body or appreciative joy looks like. I mean, it's so, when you see, you know, we could wake up and feel the, the creakiness and the stiffness but we could also like be so appreciative of the resilience of the body, like willing to get up again. Good for you, you know. You can actually stand on those two little sticks. Good for you, you know. So good the bladder works, you know. So good you can empty it. I mean, all these amazing things about the body. There, It's not that difficult to have a sense of appreciation. You know, we can chew the food, we can... All these sort of simple things to be appreciated and all the the different qualities. Thanks, Doug, for sharing that. Maybe time for one more comment before we move on. Just something from the sit tonight that struck you, what you learned, what seemed problematic. Yeah, Helen, please. Want to pass the mic through? mind was all over the place tonight but what I found I thought was so interesting it couldn't even do the guided through the body um, I just let it do its thing but I was soft to it 
And it just felt beautiful. I didn't try to follow you when, it, when you said um, things about uh, may his suffering cease. Um, that's about all my mind could come up with. It didn't really want to do that. But yet there was so much love, and I think it was because there was so much acceptance of me letting anything come up just come up. Yeah. And the, the great thing about what you said, Helen, is that the conditions don't matter. Because isn't, I mean, intellectually we get this, that whatever's going on internally, externally around us, isn't it possible that the mind can relate to it, see it with wisdom and kindness? Isn't that true? Like, can you imagine a situation, internal, external, that, would, that the mind would not be able to relate to it in a beautiful way? Whatever it is. You know, even like if somebody, you know, triggered rage in you and you did something really stupid, you shot somebody or you, you know, said something to somebody that was really hurtful, wouldn't it, can't you conceive of seeing what you just did, seeing the suffering that was set in motion, and letting it break your heart a little bit, like, oh, oh. It's really too bad. I really care about what I've set in motion. I really care about the guilt or the remorse that I feel. I really care about what's going on right now. I really understand that hating myself is to add more suffering to what is already suffering, what is already hard to bear. So I'm going to meet it with compassion or forgiveness, but I'm not in denial of what was done. Right? So even something like that, that we think, I mean, it's interesting, you know, when we do, I notice this in particular myself, when I make a mistake, I can be so desperately wanting to make amends. But I'm realizing over the years that what it is is this fear, this inability of really acknowledging in a more honest way, in a more clear way, that I'm an imperfect human being, capable of making mistakes. And it doesn't mean that making amends isn't useful. I think, you know, when it can be done, when there's a way to do that, great, we should do that. But we shouldn't be afraid. We should find a way with love, with kindness, we should find a way to meet that imperfect human being that's capable of making mistakes. Oh, oh, oh. Because it's, it's like, that's the thing. We think, you know, in a superficial way, we think that we can't let that touch the heart. We can't let that in. I can't be around that. I mean, isn't it true there are people around us whose suffering we somehow feel is too much. It's like will contaminate us or something. It's contagious. Or we don't know what to do with it. So we, not, I mean, not off, often in obvious ways, but in maybe subtle ways, we wall ourselves off from them. I mean, I have, I can bring to mind several people in my life who I do that to some degree with. And these are close people, uh, people I see. And, uh, but I, I realize, I see when I'm around them, 
that I have some sort of defense up. And it isn't that they're out to get me or anything like that. It's like their, what I imagine is their suffering scares me on some mostly unconscious way. And so when I'm not really practicing well, then I, I have a wall, some kind of psychic wall that I imagine protects me but what it really does is it sows the seeds of suffering in me and probably in the other person. It's a cause for suffering. You know, all the ways we justify a sense of separation. When you bring up politics, uh, when Kevin was talking, you know, it's like it's so easy to justify those people, you know, that they're different in all the ways. Or we see somebody who's sick and we separate them out. Old, we separate them out. Young, we separate them out. And when we don't do that, life is so much more alive and fresh. So I I just hope that people continue this exploration even after the class ends tonight. And like I've mentioned several times, it really lends itself to a creative approach. But basically what we're doing is we're challenging the frames we generally use, which involve one way or another, you know, creating boxes or compartments and the sense of separation, and using these four emotions that specifically dissolve these compartments and sense of separation boundaries. That's what love is. I mean, that's the real characteristic of love, whether it's just basic friendliness or compassion. So when that basic goodness of the heart meets suffering, we call it compassion. When that basic goodness of the heart meets something that's beautiful, even if it's really simple, like a squirrel finding a nut, then that's called joy, appreciative joy or gladness, right? Oh, I'm so happy you found that nut. May you be happy. May it make you well, right? I mean, that's not a stretch for our heart to appreciate something simple like that. And then equanimity, when anything's ambiguous or confusing, or well, we can still, like, I don't even know what's going on, but I'm willing to be close. I mean, that's equanimity. So equanimity is when we is this ability to be close when all else fails. You know, when it's confusing or ambiguous or we can't quite get what's going on. Compassion allows us to be close, intimate. No, no separation when there's we're around suffering. Appreciative joy or gladness allows us to be close when somebody around us is happy or you know we're noticing what's beautiful or good. Well, we can appreciate it. So these emotions are what allow us to meet life, to meet the life that's showing up for us. And these... Um, <coughs> these qualities of the heart, they arise quite naturally. Um, I don't think I had a chance to read this last week. Let's see if I can track it down here. Unfortunately, I didn't bring my glasses. Anybody have a pair of readers, like under two? Yeah? Oh, good. Thanks. (laughs) Don't let me forget to give them back to you. Appreciate it.
Anyway, I don't see it here right now, but uh, Bhikkhu Bodhi in his book on the Noble Eightfold Path, he talks about intention and about how compassion naturally unfolds from this experience of letting go. Like when we realize that greed or hatred or any of these afflictive states of mind don't make sense because we're paying attention and we see that it's suffering, we let go. So that's that renunciation. This is actually the first move in spiritual life. We don't know where we're going, but we know that what the mind, how the mind is relating in this moment isn't helping, so we let go. We drop that state. And it's a kind of uh, act of kindness, right? So this is the other intention. We realize, oh yeah, putting down the aversion, putting down the judging mind, ceasing my obsessive greediness. Uh, it's just like a, we care about it. And, and in that moment, we realize like, oh yeah, I was afflicting myself by, through these habits. And then the, the compassion arises when we understand that in the same way that I don't want to suffer, I don't want to relate in a way that's afflictive, all these other people, they don't want to suffer. Whether they're suffering or not doesn't matter. It's like this is what moved the Buddha to teach after his deep insight, just psychically kind of getting what was going on and the rest of humanity saw that people who wanted to be free, wanted to have a heart that was fully released, sought that in exactly ways that caused the heart to get bound up. Right? People wanting to be happy sought happiness in ways that caused suffering. So isn't it ironic that the cause for suffering is the pursuit of happiness? Is the pursuit of happiness arising from wrong view? So when we frame our world with a particular view, wrong view, like a self-centered view, and we pursue happiness from the self-centered view, we end up with all the ways we suffer. So compassion is a natural result of having enough awareness to realize that how I'm relating is the cause for suffering. So I don't know what I'm going to do, but I'm not going to, I don't want to keep hating this person. I don't want to keep judging myself. I don't want to keep obsessing about that. So we put it down and we kind of learn how to be authentically kind. And when we pick it back up, the afflictive state, you know, we see, oh yeah, that's suffering. And we put it down, we say that's release. And we start caring about our life, this basic, like taking care of ourselves out of kindness because we care. And then we just see that out in the world. We see it playing out in the world and it moves us. So this compassion, the wanting to respond to others is just a natural instinct because I see you picking up afflictive states in the way, same way I pick up afflictive states. I get myself in little bubbles. I dig a hole, fall in it. I obsess in this way. You obsess in your way. And this is the thing. Like This is a real talent for somebody who's on the path you should be able to see anybody, like even the person you find most despicable, and you should see what's operating in their mind operating in your mind. The same thing that's operating in their mind, the same way they're framing 
the same way they're falling in a hole. Now we don't, that doesn't mean we fall in the same hole or we fall as deeply in the hole that we get us stuck in that hole. But the rage we feel, the, you know, the negativity, the darkness, the hate, the superficiality, all of that. Who in the room is not capable of that? And it really, it changes how we see. Like uh, when and I were talking about the terrible thing that happened to that five-year-old girl. And, uh, you know, we were talking about the, you know, this somebody, some, I think a pretty young man, uh, killed this, I think is at least is alleged to have killed this young girl, five-year-old girl, and uh, big news the last couple of days. And then I, part of the report was, you know, he's arrested, but they, d- the, the, you know, that they didn't know the reasons. And there was some question, I forget exactly how they framed it, but about like whether he's mentally ill or not. And my point was, uh, well, how could somebody do that and not be mentally ill? And you see, it's like, but, but we, we have to, we, like we feel like I, we have to be careful because then maybe everybody's mentally ill. You know, every, you know, whenever we do something bad or whenever we do something hateful or whenever we take what isn't ours or we exploit or we put somebody in a box because they're different than we are. And it's like, well then, so nobody's guilty? Nobody deserves to be punished? I mean, it's really, it's a shock to our system to realize, and this is what I try to evoke in the, the statements, and you can... In your small groups tonight, one of the themes you might might feel appropriate for you to talk about for your during your three minutes is like where in your life do you notice the edge of compassion? Like where compassion won't go? Who is it? You know, is it a, is it the pedophile? Is it the politician? Is it the corporate? You know, so and so. Is it you know your little brother who? stole your thing and <laughs> when you were 10 and <laughs> still doesn't own it <laughs> or something, you know, something you've been harboring for 40 years. Where does compassion not go? And then to really look at, well, what is the frame? What is the view that the mind understands that situation from? How is the mind framing it? How is the mind understanding? What I- and how is self a sense of self, self-centeredness involved in that frame, in that view that allows, that kind of prevents compassion from entering in. What is it about that? Like, what are we afraid, like, and, and part of what we're afraid of is when we, it's like the sense of separation, the way the mind fixes itself and the itching. Some of you know this uh, spiritual tool in chi- from China. I guess it's part of the Taoist system. Is it Confucianism? Um, but anyway, they have this uh, concept of lawsuits. I mean, this is how it gets translated. That we have these lawsuits with people in our lives, right? You can, like, enmeshed in a lawsuit. You know, we're always like, sending our lawyer to do something and they send their lawyer to do something 
and it's like so hateful and and the whole system is adversarial it's like a power you know we're whatever power we have and how can we get power so we can do our power play and what's going to be their power move in response to our power move and they and they tend to go on and on and on and so then when somebody like we are doing now in this class we're invited to explore relating to it like with compassion or any of these four emotions and then what what prevents like some it's like well guarded why don't we do that and that and the problem is and you'll find as you if you decide to share about some place where there might be the possibility of compassion but for some reason it hasn't shown up there in that part of your life in that place in your life the reason is that what is the proximate cause for authentic healing enlivening compassion to arise the heart, the, the awareness has to be willing to show up. It has to actually feel what's being felt in that place. And so if we have a history of being separate and being in a lawsuit, whatever that is, you know, whether we're in a hateful relationship or we're just like afraid, so it might not be the sort of hate, it might be more the kind of aversion that we call fear. Oh, that's too much too much don't want to go there like i notice that in certain news stories well i don't go beyond the headlines it's like and I, it's so interesting like how delusion enters in because very quickly my mind will tell myself a story like oh yeah i know what's going on there but that's not what's really going on it's like i don't want to open my heart like syria has become this i just don't want to read anything more about syria because the problem it's like doesn't matter how clever my mind is. I can't make, I can't find anything hopeful about it. And so, you see, that's a limit of my compassion. So I have to, like, I know it's there, but I don't really want to know any of the details about what's going on there. And now you've seen, I mean, you know, our media is so um, funny how this picture of the little boy, I've seen it a number of times. I don't even read the caption. I noticed, I mean, I'm just noticing this about my mind. And immediately I go to sort of a disgust with the press, you know, and how they're exploiting us. But what's really going on is this, it's all masking this uh, fear, this aversion to suffering, the messiness of suffering. When my, you know, my brilliant creative mind can't put a positive spin on it, you know, can't like imagine a hopeful resolution or... Even like, not even a pleasant resolution, but at least I know what should be done. Because I, I know that I don't know. I don't have a clue like how this thing's gonna, how these people, so many, I mean, it's just millions of people, how their suffering is gonna cease. I don't know. So does that mean we can't, we just, our only choice is to sort of pity it or not even, not even want to go there? Or immediately hate somebody and like blame somebody. You know, United States should have intervened, or you know, or you know, even blame history. Uh, Thirty years ago, da 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 da. But this is where equanimity comes in, right? Because this thing is, for me at least, and I think maybe many of us, confusing. Then, equanimity, like I know that I don't know but yet I'm willing to be close. 
if for no other reason than being afraid of what's going on, being afraid to be aware, being afraid to hear, is suffering. It's not that me sort of being unafraid is actually helping much, if at all. But at least it gets me close. And this is the thing, you know, Doug and I were talking right before the program um, about a situation. And the interesting thing is, a lot of times we want to rush to an intervention, but it's because we're not able to just be present. And so the one of the interesting things about compassion, you know, and compassion really works hand in hand with equanimity. You really know real compassion without equanimity. It's like we want to be in this beautiful balanced place where I'm not afraid to respond if there's something to do. I'm not afraid to do it. But if there's nothing in this moment to do, I'm not afraid of not doing anything either. And this is true not just in painful places suffering, but even when you're around a lot of joy, a lot of somebody's success or somebody's really happy. Like to really be able to show up, but I don't need to neurotically have to say something to this person. Oh, it's so great what's going on in your life. If some statement is useful, I'm not afraid to say something. I'm not afraid to congratulate them or to, you know, praise them or whatever it might whatever might be appropriate. But I'm not afraid to be silent either, just to be present. And this is the important thing to understand about the quality of love. And I think I mentioned this last week. They even say in the tradition that the characteristic of love, all these four emotions, is like it knows how to show up. And so we show up and we're not showing up with an idea of like well, how to be compassionate or how to be kind or how to be joyful or how to be equanimous. It's like the expression comes naturally when we're grounded in that place. So we're really working on, and it isn't even like uh, how do we find compassion? You find compassion when you show up, when you're willing to be intimate with suffering that's what compassion is. Or when you're willing to be close to something that's beautiful, that's what mudita, appreciative joy, is. So when you're willing to, when the heart is willing or expressing its capacity to be present, then one of these four emotions or a combination of these four emotions are operating. So it's really neat because then it, it changes how we practice. So instead of me trying to be compassionate or trying to be joyful or trying to be kind or trying to be equanimous. I'm just going to keep showing up, being intimate. And then I'm going to practice recognizing, oh, that's equanimity or that's compassion or that's joy. It's joy that allowed me to show up with this person's happiness because I could appreciate their joy or their happiness. I could be joyful about their happiness because that was the appropriate response around that. So in the small groups, you know, just uh, as a theme, looking at compassion, really look at places where it flows and then in your small group, then dissect it or deconstruct it. Why Why in this situation in my life do I experience 
more regularly an authentic compassion. And then you de- deconstruct it. Well, you know, I guess somehow I've learned how to show up and then talk about what that showing up feels like, looks like. Because this is really the, um, you know, how the awakening process works is we need our life, the, the sort of great diversity of our experiences in life, the joys and the sorrows and all the in-between. We need life because then the heart, the mind, practices being intimate, practices showing up. And the only thing that can really meet life as it is, is this awakened state, these awakened qualities of the heart, love, compassion, joy, equanimity, wisdom. This is, these are the qualities, by definition, that can be intimate. So instead of trying to be wise or trying to be kind, we try to be authentically in the moment, undefended, exposed, real. And then it becomes a practice because then we're noticing the mind that's showing up, right? Because we can appreciate that. And the more we recognize that goodness, that wisdom, that kindness, that compassion, that equanimity, the easier it is to show up in the next moment. It's like what keeps me from showing up in difficult moments, some of the ones I've mentioned where my heart you know, builds a wall, is I have a habit of thinking I can't show up completely. Like saying it out loud sounds funny, but it's unconscious. It operates on an unconscious level. And unconsciously, that's sort of how the mind understands. It thinks it's dangerous. So like a particular person that I'm thinking of, it's really hard for me. I notice I'm not really relaxed. I'm controlling. I'm always negotiating my way out of the relationship. You know, finding a, a way out that doesn't cause too much harm. But you can imagine just what that must feel like to the other person. You know, no matter how skillful, how delicate I am in negotiating my way out, basically what's the vibe is, I'm afraid of being around you. I'm afraid of your suffering, so therefore you should be afraid of your suffering too. You should be afraid of your life, because I'm afraid of it. You know, it's such an insult. I mean, I totally get that I do that, I understand that it's lawful. Like there are reasons that I do it. It's there are reasons this is hard. These places are hard for me. In the same way, there are reasons for you in the places that are hard for you to be compassionate. But we wanna we wanna realize that okay. So what's really going on is the heart doesn't want to feel something. It doesn't want to feel what it's going to feel when I really show up here and I'm undefended, and I'm in this relationship with this person without a strategy of getting out of it. right? Because if you're really in it, you're not thinking about how you're going to get out of it. You're just showing up. right? And it just means I'm going to feel something in that moment. And you could sort of put it on the other person, oh yeah, I'm going to feel their suffering. But actually, we're feeling our own unpleasant you know, state of mind, heart, whatever. That's what we're afraid of. 
I mean, we say I'm afraid of their suffering, but no, no, we're afraid of what we feel when we're close to this person, when we're exposed to this person. Oh. You know, we feel that like when we get stopped at the entrance to the freeway and there's somebody asking for money, right? I mean, that's a really good place to practice being relaxed and unafraid. What are we afraid of? What are we afraid of in that? Can we just, it doesn't mean we need to give them money or whatever, but can we show up in that moment? So a couple other thoughts about what you might share in your small group. Um, well, I, I mentioned last week uh, about just ke- like how you hold the theme, especially like Kevin was talking about through daily life. So that would be an interesting thing, like just the theme of basic friendliness or metta. What gets in the way of holding that, living out of that frame? Or what really allowed you to, for periods of time to live with that frame in mind? What helps you sustain that quality of kindness, compassion as you do the twists and turns of your day? What gets in the way? What uh, supports sustaining love as you live your life? That would be a nice thing to talk about. So you might think of a time where there was a threat, like it was there in a sustained way. And then deconstruct it in your small group, like what was the mind doing that what were the supporting causes that allowed the mind to stay in that state for that length of time? And then what interrupted it? What got in the way? How did you lose the thread? And, uh, and then the other thing, the last thing that you might bring up in your small group is just looking at near enemies. And so in the tradition, things that look like kindness but aren't kindness. So... What looks like kindness but isn't kindness is attachment. So you could, that's something you could tease out. Like somebody, you, you have a cat, let's say, and you take care of your cat, you pet your cat, you're really there for your cat, but then deconstruct it in your small group. Like really look, so what of it is it attachment? Like I'm nice to my cat because there's this attachment. Like I expect something back. I have expectations as opposed to, I'm nice to my cat, I take care of my cat, because the taking care of the cat (coughs) is an end in itself. It's beautiful in and of itself, no matter how the cat treats me, right? Whether it runs away or doesn't run away, I'm just, I care about that cat. So when it's there, I take care of it. And then the shadow or the near enemy of compassion is a kind of pity, we're like we're taking care of somebody's suffering or our own suffering, but we're taking care of it in order to make it go away. No, it's true. We do want it to go away. We don't want ourselves or others to suffer, but are we afraid of their suffering? So can we take, respond to somebody's suffering in order to help it go away, but if it doesn't go away, that's okay. We want it to go away. We don't want them to suffer, but we're not afraid. We know that we don't hold all the cards. Like uh, some people in the room work in hospice. And, you know, obviously in those situations, people don't recover or, you know, very rarely um, live for very long. So can we really show up? Can we be caring even though we know it's a losing cause? Or maybe all we're doing is 
helping their suffering be less intense, but we don't we don't really have the supporting causes to make a significant change, but we can just make a bad situation slightly less bad. Is that okay? Can that be enough? Otherwise, it becomes pity or some aversion that masquerades as compassion. We're really there, but if you don't get better, you know, that's not okay. And even appreciative joy has a shadow which is a kind of exuberance where we're so excited or so happy, but we're not really connected to that person. We're sort of lost in our own little um, rifts off of that person's happiness as opposed to really connecting. I'm so happy that you're happy. I'm so happy that you're happy that I actually feel happy because of your happiness. But it's about the connection, about the seeing and appreciating of the happiness of the other person. So basically, the shadows all involved a self-centered drama. So that makes it not really compassion, not really joy, not really kindness, and not really equanimity. So the, the, just to finish this off, the shadow for equanimity, you could probably guess, is indifference. It kind of looks like equanimity, but we're distant. It's like, this doesn't matter to me. That's not equanimity. That's a subtle kind of aversion. And it's a drama like, I don't care about this. Real equanimity is like, I'm willing to really I'm willing to show up, but I don't really know what's happening. I don't even know whether this is good or bad. But nonetheless, because it's happening, I'm willing to be here. I'm willing to show up. So let's try something new tonight. Uh, we have a little bit more time, so let's try groups of four so you can meet more people. And the first thing you're going to do is introduce your names. Introduce yourself. Just say your name. Then next thing you're going to do is set an order so you don't have to think about it. Sit really close so you are not don't need to talk very loud. That way you won't be so disturbing to the groups around you. And uh, if you're new to these small groups, just really be in the experience of your body. Just be intimate with your body. Because if you're really present with your body, you're going to be really present with the person who's speaking. Everybody gets three minutes. You get three minutes whether you have three minutes to say or not. So if you run out of things to say, it's totally okay because the group, all of you together, will just hold the silence. And the person whose turn it is, keep reflecting on one of these themes that I've just mentioned. And then you might, before your time is up, you might have more to say. And then go right ahead, say more, as long as you have time. And then when you hear the bell, or if you have a timekeeper, then when your time's up, just finish up. Don't feel like you've got to stop in the middle of your sentence. Finish your sentence. Let the people who are listening can just in a casual way thank the person who was speaking. And then the next person has three minutes. Every person gets three minutes. And then there should be about five minutes at the end just for an open discussion with the group. Okay? So I'm guessing we have about 60 people, maybe a little bit more. So groups of 15, why don't we do groups of 16? Want to start? This talk, like all programs at Common Ground, is offered freely in the spirit of generosity. To learn more about Common Ground and its programs, or if you would like to donate, please visit our website, www.commongroundmeditation.org. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.